Thank you for traveling with Amex Platinum. To your right, you'll see Oceanside Relaxation at a fine hotel and resort property. When booked through Amex Travel, you can enjoy complimentary breakfast for 2 and 4 p.m. late checkout. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. This is Jeff T. from the Club 520 Podcast. When it comes to your feet, eBay's got your back. When you see the blue check mark that says authenticity guaranteed, that means real experts are checking your sneakers. Every stitch, down to the sole. They even smell them because nothing says fresh like the scent of real kicks. So kick back and relax. From the drop to your doorstep, eBay doesn't play games with your sneaker game. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal with eBay Authenticity Guaranteed. Visit ebay.com for terms. The Volume. Charles Darwin. The Nerds is where it's at. Welcome everybody back into Nerd Sesh. As always, I'm Carson Brever and alongside me is Logan Camden. And today we are going to be doing our first ever mailbag show, which I am very excited for because we're going to get to cover a wide variety of NBA, NFL topics, current and historical, all of which you guys have asked us to talk about. So we're going to start with this one that comes to us from Josh Rodriguez on Twitter. He asked us for our top 10 NBA teams to never win a title. I will say we do a ton of top 10, so people asked for a few of those. We don't really have time for a full list like that here. So Logan, why don't you just give me your number one choice here, and then we can talk about some of the honorable mentions after. It, it's tough choosing my number one. I think I would probably go with... I know this is a weird choice because the peak wasn't very long. I think I'm going to go with Derrick Rose's Bulls. And the only reason I say that is because I think they were so like well set up for the future. You know what I mean? I think that because we only got to see it so briefly, uh, it just feels like it was stolen from us because of D. Rose's injury. Uh You've got, you know, young Jimmy Butler uh, on those teams later. You've got Carlos Boozer. You got Taj Gibson, Joe Kim Noah, Lou Aldang, uh, Kirk Heinrich. Like, really solid depth behind Derrick Rose and always one of the teams. Uh, we're always one of the league's best defenses with that group. And I just think when you had an offensive engine like Derrick Rose, who was only inevitably going to get better uh, with those guys behind him, I think they would have been competitive for years to come. So they're up there for me. I, I considered other teams, but... Uh, to me, just because of what they could have been and how brief the peak was and what we got to see out of them, uh, I'm going to take Derrick Rose's Bulls. That is a fascinating choice that I did not <laughs> expect. I don't know that they quite have the body of work to justify being the number one. They had a very high two-year peak in that 2011 and 2012 range and were pretty much the best regular season team in the NBA, but only one actual playoff run out of them at which point the Heat were pretty clearly still a better team. My biggest question here would probably be what offensive ceiling they could have reached because they were the best defensive team in the league. But 
did they have the high level of offensive skill? Did they have the sort of shooting ceiling playing with two more traditional bigs with Boozer and Joe Kim Noah out there to really win in those environments that just require the highest levels of offensive production? I don't know. And I also don't know that D Rose with some of his limitations, inconsistency as a pull-up jump shooter was going to be like an elite, elite offensive engine. Obviously he was an incredible rim pressurer and a good playmaker, but he wasn't a super efficient high volume scorer. Wasn't the most complete offensive engine, I guess I would say. So I sort of broke this off into two different categories. I think the best team that never won a title in the traditional sense of this core was together for an extended period of time and they never got the job done is pretty clearly the 1990 to 2000 jazz. Cause they had a decade where they were at that level, always in those conversations, averaged 56 and a half wins for that 11 year stretch, five Western Conference finals, and of course the two finals appearances, and had stretches where they were the best defense in the league very early on with Mark Eaton, and then were pretty much automatically a top three offense once the Stockton, Malone, and Hornacek trio was really humming, but they could never get it done. But I think the best single team like for one year that did not win that title is very clearly the 2016 Warriors, like 73 and nine greatest regular season ever. And uh, we're just taken down by an all-time performance from LeBron and Kyrie and those Cavs. So who else did you consider here? I considered a bunch of teams and I think you laid out uh, a pretty good formula when answering this question. And that's uh, in the 1990s, like the jazz, there's a lot of teams that Michael Jordan just, stiff-armed and uh, said, sorry, buddy, you're not getting a ring. Uh, those Knicks teams were always feisty defensively, had a bunch of uh, really talented guards and scoring talent there, too. The Pacers, uh, all the Reggie Miller's teams in that era were competitive. Uh, the Trailblazers that uh, Jordan beat, the Suns that he beat in the finals. Uh, and then I had a couple other uh, more modern teams post-2000, the early 2000s Kings, the mid-2000s Suns, the 2010s Thunder, uh, obviously, and I, I don't even just mean that with Harden and Russ and KD, the team that went to the finals, but also the uh, subsequent, the following seasons with KD and Russ alone. I mean, those teams were great too. Uh, and then you've got, I think, uh, the most modern team, uh, save those Warriors that didn't get the job done, probably Harden's Rockets, uh, especially the 2018 mm -hmm. team that got really close though. Uh, those were all really tough and uh, really close for me, but I think they're all great teams that didn't get a title. Very good choices. So again, I'll break it up into my two categories. These sort of extended in these conversations for a half decade plus. You mentioned the 2011 through 16 Thunder, four Western Conference Finals in six years. I think the 94 to 2000 Pacers, five Eastern Conference Finals in seven years, reached such a high offensive peak in the last few years of that decade. And pushed the Lakers so much more than the 0-1-6ers or the 0-2-Nets. We tend to sort of lump them together, but the Pacers actually outscored the Lakers in that series. And then I think the 2005 through 2010 Suns, three Western Conference Finals, and it is one of the greatest offensive runs we've ever seen. They had the number one offense five times in six years, just could never put together even a top 10 defense, and it is exceptionally difficult to win a title under those circumstances. And then for the best single year, you mentioned the 2018 Rockets. I think they belong here. A historically great offense. I would have the 2002 Kings in a very similar category to them 
in that they had these great regular seasons. They blew through very legit competition in the West. Both of them had only dropped two games in total going into the Western Conference Finals. And then they lose to this juggernaut, not just in very tight seven-game series, but under such unfortunate circumstances with the CP3 injury and then missing 26 straight threes for the Rockets and, of course, for the very questionable officiating that the Kings were subjected to in 0-2. Last one that I would shout out is the 1973 Celtics, who sort of like the 2016 Warriors you don't necessarily think of because they still got their rings, but that's the second best regular season team that didn't win the title. They were 68 and 14 and ended up losing to the champs who would, uh, the Knicks, who would go on to win their second title, very tight seven game series, and then the Celtics would win two of the next three titles. So again, they got theirs, but for that one year, they were really great and they still could not win that title. Okay, our next question comes to us from Jonah Krell on Twitter. Who are the most underrated NBA players ever to you, Logan? He's maybe not the most underrated ever, but when I think of the word underrated, the first guy that pops into my mind is Mike Conley. I, uh, For some reason. Uh, he's just a one-time All-Star, uh, and he just does all the little things uh, outside of scoring, man. He's a great defender. He's a great decision-maker. He's a great passer, and just knows how to attack mismatches and get the ball to where it needs to be. He's a great point guard, and I think I, the West was loaded, you know, when he was at his peak, and it's just tough. You know, I think if he was in the East, maybe he'd have a few more all-star appearances, but uh, when I think of just do-it-all guys who are who play winning basketball and just kind of fly under the radar, I, Mike Conley is, again, probably not the best example throughout NBA history, and I do have some honorable mentions, but... When I think of just underrated basketball players, underrated hoopers, Mike Conley is the first guy that I think of. The fact that he is a one-time All-Star to me, Carson, absolutely blows my mind. Yeah, I think that's really just a product of how insane the guard talent in the West was for his entire prime. But that's a good choice. I would say my number one, and really we're just picking nits here because there's so many guys who I think are really underrated. I might go with Ray Allen because I think so many people, especially of our generation or even a few years older than us, associate him with the Boston years and also the Miami years when you just weren't getting apex Ray Allen. He was a legitimately great offensive engine. In six of the eight years before he went to Boston, between Milwaukee and Seattle, he led top three offenses. That's without playing alongside really high-end offensive talent. He just had such tremendous value in enhancing the shot quality for everybody around him because he was the best shooter of that time and just an incredible off-ball weapon altogether, but also could really get himself a bucket. I think was an underrated playmaker, was extremely efficient, 5% true shooting, better than league average, had an iconic and legitimately great playoff run in 2001 where he shoots 48% from deep on really high volume and is putting up 25 a night and six assists a game and almost leads that Bucks team to the final. I just think Ray Allen was a truly superb ahead of his time offensive player and individually like maybe his scoring numbers and playmaking numbers in a vacuum aren't going to be the most outstanding. But again, the value of having a shooter of that caliber on the floor at all times just makes everybody else around you better. And he did excel as a scorer, period. And he was an underrated playmaker. I'm big on Ray Allen. Who else did you consider here? Like who's on the short list? 
right, that's a phenomenal pick, dude. That, that really is. I think Ray's definitely on that list. Some of the other guys, I think Chris Weber's criminally underrated. I just think he's overlooked in terms of how well-rounded and all the little things he can do. A great rebounder, an underrated passer, ball handler, and scorer. Wasn't the most efficient, but I think he just kind of gets overlooked. I mean, he's a career 20-point-per-game scorer, and at his peak, he's 24-11-5 with Sacramento. I just think people kind of forget about C-Web a little bit. Among the all-time greats, I think the most underrated to me uh, is just down the road from me back home in Virginia, uh, Moses Malone. I mean, a three-time MVP, a top-10 scorer of all time. And looking back at his, at his basketball reference page, Carson, the guy averaged almost 18 rebounds a game in 1979, man. I mean, I just, I know that people respect Moses and what he did, arguably the greatest rebounder of all time, uh, super tenacious there. I just think that, I don't know, when, when we discuss the greats, he just kind of gets overlooked in the big man conversation. We go Shaq, we go Bill, we go Wilt, you know, we go Kareem. And I, for good reason, I think all of those guys were more offensively inclined than Moses. But uh, just, this guy won three MVPs. He's a top 10 scorer of all time, and we kind of tend to overlook him a little bit. So in the all-time scope, I think Moses is is a bit underrated too. Yeah, and I think that comes down to not playing on very good teams in Houston, which was a good chunk of his prime, and not having the most aesthetically pleasing style of play. Like, he wasn't a super skilled post-scorer. I think Rick Barry belongs in this conversation for a couple reasons. Spending some of his prime years in the ABA, he never really had great personnel around him, but he dragged some teams to some really impressive heights, like had a legendary finals performance and overall scoring season in 67 going to the finals. And then of course, 75, another dominant run with not your traditional title caliber roster, didn't have another star alongside him. And the next couple years was leading that team to overachieve in the regular season and especially in the playoffs, I would say. So one of the great early scoring and playmaking combo guys from a bigger wing, a great shooter, Rick Barry was just dominant. And also people didn't like him is another thing that I would say works against him. I think Reggie's underrated as an offensive engine because, again, the raw numbers don't jump off the page at you, but his constant gravity was so, so impactful. But I just made a whole video about him. I think Kawhi Leonard might belong in these conversations just because of his issues with availability, but the peak that we've seen from him in not just 2019, the title run, the subsequent postseasons, every time that he's healthy, he is such a remarkably efficient and complete playoff scorer because of his physical dominance combined with that incredible shooting skill. He's grown as a playmaker and he has one of the highest defensive peaks ever. So if Kawhi could have just stayed healthy more, man, I mean, I think he would indisputably be a top 25 player of all time. I mean, do you think people are like disrespecting him now or people are like beginning to forget what he, you know, is like, why, why do you say that? I just think people are starting to downplay that Pete Kawhi was firmly in conversations with Steph and KD in that second through fourth best player in the league range. And the 2019 title, I think, is one of the more impressive individual accomplishments and runs of this century. The last couple years in San Antonio, he's propelling those teams to 60-plus wins without another star. And his playoff resume, since that title run, he's averaged 39 and 4.5 on 63% true shooting. His game just translates so seamlessly to that stage, and he is really like the pinnacle of that two-way wing assassin archetype. 
but he's just not going to have the regular season accolades because of availability. And unfortunately, even though he's had some remarkable playoff runs, 2017 was cut short. 2021, he was playing out of his mind, cut short. All of that because of health, which I think really is going to be the thing that underrates him. But because I value peak more than longevity, I'm always going to be a big Kawhi guy. This is an interesting question from Boss Wiggle on Twitter. Which NBA player do you think could have been a lot better than they were had they been used better by their former teams? Okay, this was uh, one of my favorite questions on here. Really good one. I took a bit of a cop-out answer here. I'm not going to lie. I went with James Harden for this one just because of the obvious choice. Uh, The Thunder didn't pay James Harden. They Mm. let him walk. They didn't want to pay the luxury tax. You know, they kept bringing him off the bench. Uh, And just, again, what we could have gotten with that core, that team produces three MVPs. Obviously, I think with uh, how much Russ and uh, KD were on ball, you know, I don't know if Harden ever becomes what we saw him become in Houston, right? Because those volume of touches point blank made him a better player, right? So I don't know how much he would have progressed if he was with that team, but I did go with him because I thought he made the most sense. If they end up keeping Harden, if they pay over the luxury tax, throw him in the starting lineup and let him rock with those guys, you know, who knows what happens with that team? Who knows how many rings that they get or uh, you know, if they finally do bring a championship home to Oklahoma City. So uh, this is a really interesting one, but I went with Harden. Yeah, I mean, certainly in that one context, but James Harden obviously turned out fine. He ended up getting his. So I came up with a few different types of answers for this. I have T-Mac here just because he spent his prime years on teams that were so devoid of talent. I think it would have been interesting if he could have been a more consistently efficient offensive engine because the skill, the blend of athleticism and pull-up jump shooting and playmaking is so unique, especially for that time at his size. But man, those Magic teams were just absolute garbage. I wrote David Robinson here just because I think that in his prime he never got to play alongside another offensive star. Obviously, Duncan comes in for the 97-98 season, but by that point, David Robinson isn't his peak self, and he's only even a star-level guy for maybe three more years. Prime David Robinson had to carry such an insane load offensively while being this all-time defender. It sort of feels to me like if you asked... AD for his entire prime to try to carry those Pelicans teams and he never got to play with his LeBron and see what he could do while still being this brutally efficient and dominant scorer but not also having to be like a lead playmaker and then excel on the defensive end of the floor David Robinson just never had that kind of support until he was past his absolute apex and then I thought of a couple guys who I just feel like were ahead of their time And one who stands out to me is Andre Kirilenko because he was an elite multi-positional defender. He was a good playmaker. I think there was some floor spacing upside there that could have been more tapped into in this modern era. And that right there is a really winning combination of skills that in the mid-2000s wasn't quite as valuable as it would be now. So that's not a question of anybody being at fault for his utilization as it is just about the time and context that he played in. Those are good picks. You know what, man? I like the route you took with guys who maybe weren't on great teams. I think a guy whose, you know, prime was pretty brief after he went, uh, moved on from the Warriors, uh, like Gilbert Arenas. Like, Gilbert never had a, you know, surrounding Mm -hmm. team around him uh, 
that oh no i'm serious man i mean those teams are you got a big three of like him karan butler and antoine jameson you know i mean those are three really good players there but it's not like you're contending for anything i mean he was a special special uh, all-time scorer and playmaker at his apex i mean he could give you 30 a night and then all time logan a little lenient with the all-time there in my opinion all-time scorer and playmaker gilbert arenas how about very very good very good in dude in big moments though man Gil was stone cold. He was there where I think in a playoff setting, he really What thrived. big moments? Dude, when he, bro, he balled out. Play in any big moments. Man, don't do Gil like that. Because he didn't have a team around, and that's my point. Thank you, Carson. Okay. I just <laughs> chuckled because, of course, you love No Chill Gil, man. And he was like that. And he's another guy who I think was ahead of his time when you just consider the pull-up shooting volume from deep. He was great. And I wish that we had gotten to see more of him healthy at that peak that he was in from like 05 to 07 because he was a dog, no doubt about it. Okay, next question comes to us from Ian Eldridge on Twitter. Who are some current athletes that are unjustly hated on? And he threw out some names that popped into his head. He said Justin Herbert, Kyler Murray, Carlos Alcaraz, Drew Holiday, and Cat. What do you think, Logan? Those are those are good picks. I, I have a question I want to pose to you first, though, Garson. Is it okay. fair to hate an athlete because they suck? Yes, maybe. Okay, with that context, I only want to go with guys that are actually, like, legitimately good players then. Uh, because I do think that it's okay. Like, if a guy really stinks, I think that's not a reason to hate a guy. I don't think you should, like, vehemently, like, hate anybody or... Um, just outright. We should all love, yeah, you know. It's love just one another. Exactly. It's just what it's all about. Uh, so these are all guys who I think are very good players, but just get a little extra hate. Dak Prescott is one that always stands out to me, mm-hmm. and it's for one reason and one reason only. There's one. If there's one truth in life, if you got that star on the side of your helmet and you are under center, people are going to hate you. Like Dak is a good quarterback. He is a good dude. I think he is a good leader. Threw a lot of interceptions last year, but people are always going to hate on him because of the star on the side of his helmet. I think Herbert is an excellent pick, too. Uh, and I got one more quarterback. And I know a lot. He's a polarizing guy. I think the guy that gets hated on the most that I see that I really think isn't warranted is Baker Mayfield. And you can tell me where you come down on Baker Carson. Like, I, some people I know they think he sucks. I don't think Baker sucks. Like, I think he's. Uh, struggled with injury over the past couple seasons. He's not like the most talented guy, but I think with structure around him, he can be a winning quarterback. I don't know if it's personality that they think he's brazen, but I, I like Baker a lot, and I see him get a lot of hate. And I- I- I'm not really uh, 100% sure what the exact reason is. I think he's, I think he's actually good. Like I don't think he just outright sucks, and that's why people hate him. Yeah, why would anybody think that Baker Mayfield is brazen? Where could they get an idea like that, Logan? He's dangerous. He woke up feeling dangerous. That's an interesting choice. I don't know that I totally agree. I do totally agree on Dak, though. And I think Ian mentioned Kyler, which is a good choice. And the thing with this is most of the most hated on athletes, there is going to be some reason behind it. If it's performance on a big stage if it's a certain limitation they have that can become glaring in spots if it's something about their personality 
For Kyler, I think it's largely the latter. Personality, questions about dedication to the game and leadership and whatnot. And obviously, he was just on a team that sucked this year, and people will always look at the quarterback there. But a couple years ago, I pretty clearly thought he was a top 10 quarterback, and now I'll see some tier lists that'll have him, like, with Kenny Pickett. No offense. And I just think because of some of that reputation stuff, people have started to overly criticize him as an actual football player for being such a dynamic, like historically great running threat and a really special arm talent as well. That's not to say that he's a top 10 quarterback. I certainly don't think he is, but I think he's better than a lot of people will say right now. If we pivot over to basketball, I also think Ian mentions Cat. That's a good choice. Again, there is a reason for it. Cat, first of all, I think annoys a lot of people with his personality. And in the limited opportunities we've had to see him on the playoff stage, he hasn't been the best version of himself. Some people, I think, get frustrated with his reliance on his perimeter game. But it's like, I don't know, man. He's probably the greatest shooting big that we've ever seen. Certainly the best at creating a three-point shot for himself off the dribble. He's a really good passer. I think Cat is tremendously skilled offensively and is overly hated on. I think Trey Young is a bit overly hated on right now. Again, he has real playoff limitations, terrible defensively, not the most efficient shot maker, but he also is able to elevate team offenses with his playmaking, with the pressure that he exerts out of pick and roll so consistently to levels that very few people can. And I think there are some people who are overemphasizing the weaknesses in relation to his really special strengths. I thought about Paul George here, but I think the tide is turning with Paul George, Logan. I think with his podcast, with a bunch of young hoopers claiming that he's the GOAT, maybe people have finally started to get off playoff P's back a little bit. I think I think Trey Young is a really good pick, man. I don't know. I, I think it's Trey's, uh, a little bit of his personality, but the, the villain thing, I know a lot of people in New York hate him too. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Trey is way overhated. And like I've, I don't hate Trey. I just don't think he's as great as some people think he is. But I, I do think that, still stemming, I think he's got a whole contingency, a whole state that has painted him as like their chief villain. Uh, I think Trey's way overhated. Yeah. Cat, I think that's valid too. I, I'm glad, man. I, I don't. Did you ever think that Paul George was hated on? I, I thought. I don't know. Maybe it's the circles that I run. Yes. I always thought, I always thought Paul George is kind of universally loved. No, dude. Well, first of all, after 2020, he was the laughing stock of the league, understandably, because he was really bad against Dallas, and then obviously they lost to Denver. But I just think the totality of his playoff resume is pretty underrated. And dude, I'm telling you, when he called himself Playoff P and then played like that in the playoffs, America turned on him. You can't have that sort of performance, and you really shouldn't be giving yourself a nickname in any context. But I think people have come around on him. I will throw out one more NBA player, which is Jalen Brown. I think that people are, again, exaggerating a weakness that is there. His ball handling is poor. His playmaking is poor. He did not have a good series against the Heat. And then he went and he signed the biggest contract in NBA history, which sounds insane, but it's going to continue to happen. He is a max level player. He is a really, really gifted scoring wing. And I just think people have gotten a bit carried away with that. But again, the reasons make sense. And I would mention Zion just because 
it almost feels like there's so much fixation on off the court stuff with the whole Mariah Mills thing and just his struggle staying healthy and people talk about his weight all the time and just ignore the fact that he is legitimately on pace to be one of the greatest offensive players we've ever seen when he can actually play with that combination of insane rim pressure and finishing and pretty good playmaking. Zion is just the man, but he can't stay healthy. So neither of us had him in our top 10 guys under 25 who we would build around because of that. Okay. This next question comes to us from Carson Williams on Twitter. Do you consider the Cavs title contenders this year? And if not, do you think they can get over the hump before Mitchell's contract expires? That's a good question. I, uh, It all depends on what we see this upcoming season. In the playoff run, I just definitively don't think that Garland and Mobley are there yet. That's my big thing is uh, Garland was in and out, you know, inconsistent. Uh, Evan Mobley's offensively limited. I think if they hold on to Jared Allen and Evan Mobley for the time being, Look, Donovan Mitchell and Darius Garland are two of the most dynamic guards in basketball, but there's just a certain offensive ceiling that you can't surpass when you have Okoro, when you have Allen, when you have Mobley on the floor. Like, you need spacing, you need shooters, you just need flat-out more talented guys who can score the basketball, and that's really what let them down, as well as them not having any depth bigs on the roster. So, honestly... I think they can be. I think Garland has room to grow. I think Mobley has a lot of room to grow. I think moving forward, they should probably move off Jared Allen. This contract's tough. I think that they can be contenders, and this this upcoming season's going to tell us a lot. Like, if Garland and Mobley take another leap and are more consistent and just play better, have uh, and they can shore up their bench a little bit, because, uh, I mean, Cleveland's depth was horrendous last season. I think they could be contenders before their contract expires, but I wouldn't call them contenders after what we saw in the playoffs this year. Yeah, I totally agree. Until they have a more skilled front court, I can't consider them title contenders. I think that Mobley needs to develop there. He needs to become a more capable floor spacer and a more assertive offensive big overall. And I think he needs to become a bit better equipped for the physicality battle of a playoff series and also to be the full-time five because I do think that they have to try to move on from Jared Allen, ideally for a legit wing. And I think you can give the sales pitch of, hey, this is one of the best rim protecting and rim finishing out of pick and roll bigs that there is. He's under contract for a few more years at just 20 million a year. That's a good value contract and they might be able to turn him into an actual asset, but I think they definitely need better spot-up shooting. They need a better off-ball player who can fill in some of those wing minutes because right now they were just far too reliant on absurd pull-up shooting and overall offensive creation from Garland and Mitchell, and it made them too one-dimensional as a team. So it's going to have to be more shooting, more offensive skill, Mobley growing into his own and taking up a majority of those minutes at the five So yeah, I think they can do it before Mitchell's contract is up. I think it is one of the most talented young cores we have ever seen. And they have the foundation already of great perimeter play in terms of both scoring and playmaking with an awesome, awesome defensive anchor. So they just got to fill in the long-term three and four because I do think Mobley is going to have to move to the five. So they can get there. Okay. Frankie on Twitter asks for our greatest male athletes of all time. Logan, who would you have number one there? Oh, 
I guess it's tough, man, because there's so many different sports. There's so many different categories. If we're going off of accomplishments, I think I would probably go with Michael Phelps or Wayne Gretzky, like in terms of mm-hmm. contemporaries. Like Gretzky, I, I'm not a big hockey guy, but Gretzky's accomplishments in in hockey are crazy. And then Phelps is one of the greatest swimmers ever. You got like, I don't know, man. Like if he felt like a recount NASCAR as a sport, like I'd have Richard Petty up there, man, or Jimmy Johnson. Like, I don't know what the criteria is. You got your tennis guys, Djokovic, Nadal, Federer, take your pick. Uh, I'll get into my honorable mentions. If I had to pick, I guess I would say Michael Phelps, like in just terms of how he, you know, performed against his contemporaries, how successful he was against you know across so many olympic runs i'd probably say him i think phelps is the correct pick i don't know that there's a more glaring gap between first place in all of olympic history being phelps with 23 gold medals and then second being a few people tied with nine that's just absurd but in terms of sports that i'm really informed on in sports with a ball, I would say Novak Djokovic, who you mentioned there, is the greatest male athlete ever. I just think for those people who aren't really tennis fans, imagine a guy holding basically every meaningful record in the sport while having competed with the second and third greatest players ever. Like, that is what he has been doing for 18 years now, he's a top three player of all time on all three surfaces, hard, grass, and clay. Federer cannot claim that sort of versatility. I mean, not to that extent. Like, Djokovic is just clearly a better clay court player throughout history than Federer. And he's clearly got Rafa beat on two of the three surfaces. It's really, really absurd. He's got the record for the most slams. He's got by far the most weeks at number one. He's got the head-to-head advantage over the two other goats. He's got the best win percentage ever, the most masters ever, which for those who don't know is the biggest title after slams. He's the only player to win every slam three times and every masters twice. Like He is the most complete Uh, He is the most dominant at his apex, I would argue. If you look at 2011 and 2015, those are two of the handful of greatest seasons we've ever seen. And compared to like what Fed did in the 04 to 07 range, Djokovic was just doing it against better competition. He's doing that against pretty much prime Fed and Rafa as well. And he has like unmatched longevity. He's 36 and he's still very arguably the best player in the world. He's already won two of the three slams this year and he made the final in the other. So... In my lifetime, I think he is the most impressive, most consistently dominant athlete against absurd competition that I have seen. And I lean on giving individual athletes the edge over team athletes because you are so directly responsible for your success. Like, I I don't know if I could ever put a football player as the greatest athlete ever. I certainly couldn't put a guy like Tom Brady there for the totality of his team accomplishments because there's just way too many other components compared to a guy like Djokovic. I, I, I completely understand that, and I think that's a good justification for other sports that I'm not super informed on. I think Usain Bolt uh, is up there, Tiger Woods, uh, like I mentioned, Jimmy Johnson, Richard Petty, Lionel Messi, um, but for the sports that I am informed on, LeBron, Jordan, and then my football guys, I think that if you're going to pick out, I think Brady is certainly one that could be up there. Brady's not my greatest football player of all time, though, because like you said, again, we have to look at the individual when it comes to, I know the Super Bowls are glaring. Quarterback is the position that drives winning the most on the football field. 
but you can still look at individualized impact. And I think there are four other football players that I'd have up there with Brady. Rice is my number one. I think Jerry's the greatest football player to ever live. His dad was throwing him bricks when he was a kid, man. That's how he got those, you know, them, them soft hands. He could catch anything. Uh, Brady's probably two, but also up there, Lawrence Taylor, Jim Brown. And then I'd have, I think, Deion Sanders in my top five. Um, any of those guys, I think, should be in heavy consideration. But like you said, it is really tough to put any of those guys up there with individual athletes when there's no other... There's no other variables. There's no other external factors, but I think they deserve honorable mentions yeah. too. Yeah, I think Rice makes the most compelling case just because if it's a question of outpacing your peers, a good God is he convincing in that respect. Okay. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Next question comes to us from Mick Adams on Twitter. Do you have any suggestions or methods of absorbing information from prior seasons? I've only gotten big into basketball the past few years and would like to have more knowledge of the past 10 to 15-ish years. Don't know the best way without just having watched the seasons live. Yeah, I mean, my best suggestion to anybody is to just read. Like, I, I know that's a mm -hmm. boring answer, but I mean, it's it's the best way to, to learn. When I was a kid, the I had... Uh, these books that I read from cover to cover every day on my way to school. I had a 45-minute commute uh, to my high school or to my elementary school every day. So I had a lot of time. And I would read, man, uh, Year in Sports 06, Year in Sports 08, Year in Sports like 2007. And they had every number. They had the career leaderboards. They had all these things. So I would just say if you can find good almanacs or good encyclopedias on the sports themselves and just, mm -hmm. you know, take some time out every day and read them. Um also, I'd say, too, is just other forms of media. Uh, I learned a lot from the NFL by watching old NFL top tens, their ranking, stuff like that. So, I mean, obviously, I think the easiest way is, uh, you know, absorb media of some kind. But definitely reading, man. Just reading old books and stuff like that. They will have uh, all kinds of nuggets. I really recommend those old year in sports books. They have every number, every stat you could ever ask for uh, about every sport from that year. Yeah, I mean, I think reading is massive. You mentioned, like, the encyclopedias. I remember, especially for tennis, I have three different encyclopedias, 
and uh, two of which are actually just the same book, but then an updated version that catalog in detail, like every single year, here's a couple pages on the most relevant tournaments, the most relevant matches, this player's ascension, this player's decline. And so you just develop a real familiarity and to some extent, like of every single year, which I think is valuable if you want to talk with some fluency about that, but you still have to go deeper than that. I would say you can just search basketball reference or football reference as much as you want. That's pretty fun. I also do think it really helps to watch old sports because you, especially with the greats want to have an understanding of how they played and what made them great. And I think that's one of like the great joys is going back. And you think of all the events that you've watched live in your life. There's a whole wealth of stuff before that, that you haven't seen. And it's like a new experience. Like this past weekend, dude, I watched so many old tennis matches and basketball games and it's just really, really fun to me. And then again, you just become more familiar with everybody. They're more than just a name and a number to you. And I also think if you just want to start learning old guys who weren't in the top tier, but were pretty good. If you do enough Sporkle quizzes, names will start to pop up and maybe you don't exactly know much about that person just because you can identify them in a Sporkle quiz or something, but it might make you aware of them and then provoke you to go learn and read more about them. And there's so much interesting stuff out there. And I think it's also great to read about specific stories and seasons and great players there's so many good biographies out there i would recommend pistol to anybody it's about pistol pete i think that's probably my favorite that i've read but there's also a great book about the 7980 blazers a couple years after they won their title called breaks of the game by david halberstam that i know is like bill simmons favorite he recommended it many years ago and that's why i read it but that's a fantastic book that's not just about sports it's about that time in America and the culture and racial relations. So I agree with Logan read, watch basketball, football reference, sporkle, all those in combination. And you'll, you'll learn a good bit. Okay. This one comes to us from Eduardo Morales on Twitter. Who's the best receiver ever not named Moss Owens or rice. I think, he pinpointed the right three guys too, and I'll say this because I know I don't believe To has a fifteen hundred yard season, and uh, you know I know Randy's yardage numbers aren't gaudy. I think to be an all time receiver, you have to tick two boxes. You have to be great at you know obviously accumulating yards to say you move the football, but I think you also have to be a great red zone threat too. A guy that uh, in big spots can can score a lot of touchdowns, right? That's what made all three of those guys too. They weren't just great receivers who could run great routes they were also great at getting the ball in the end zone I have three guys and I've argued this a lot it is uh, one of my hottest takes I I watched every game of him I still love him with all of my heart and soul and that's Antonio Brown Uh, he filled me with such joy on Sundays knowing that anytime he touched the ball he could go to the house on a slant he could dance you know after the catch he was so good at avoiding defenders he was also so great at controlling his body on catches the way he can contort and twist and keep his feet in bounds but to me the big playability with ab is so underrated that anytime if it was a deep ball if it was you know in between route and in route and out route anytime he touched the ball it could be a house call and his peak is so so super high he doesn't have the career accolades but if you were looking at wide out peak i think ab uh, is up there i also think calvin johnson 
We all know the clip, Carson. You've seen that picture. Two guys lining up against Calvin Johnson at the uh, right at the goal line. That's what you had to do, man. He was 6'5", super physical, super imposing, and could jump out of the building. Uh, Megatron, with all of his physical ability, uh, was just one of the greats. Um, and you could just throw a ball up there and go get it, Calvin. And then the third guy I think that should be in contention uh, is Marvin Harrison. And Marvin Harrison has a... Um, has a clear argument against him, obviously, right, that he played with one of the greatest QBs of all time. And I think another thing that, when you talk about underrated players, too, I know we touched on some guys. I think Marvin's one of the most underrated because you think about the uh, the typical persona of a wide receiver, right, it's loud, it's braggadocious, he's, he's out there, he's in the camera. I can't tell you, I, I know what Tim Duncan sounds like, right? Tim Duncan, I could tell you. I don't know what Marvin Harrison sounds like. I've never heard Marvin Harrison say a word. Like, have you ever seen a clip of Marvin Harrison talking? No. Like, Marvin's super quiet. And like I mentioned earlier, I think the big knock that if you had one on Marvin and why he's below all those other guys is because he played with Peyton. You know, all the other guys are kind of in that very good tier, right? But Peyton is like the second greatest QB of all time. Those other guys just don't have the same kind of caliber of QB. But again, Marvin is one of the greatest of all time. I, I don't think that that should uh, totally take away from, from all of his career. He's a, he's a special all-time receiver and belongs in that conversation as well. You identified the three guys who I was going to talk about. I do think the separator for Marvin Harrison is it feels like the other two so actively elevated their quarterback Whereas it feels like Peyton elevated Marvin Harrison and like he is the best receiver that Peyton ever played with and he does belong on this shortlist. But Reggie Wayne's peak production was insane with Peyton. Demarius Thomas's Emmanuel Sanders, like all these guys put up monster numbers because it's Peyton Manning. Between AB and Megatron, it's tough, man. I think I lean AB though because Megatron is obviously in a tier only with Randy as just all-time athletic threats, both of them having like sub 4-3 speed at 6-5 in Megatron's case, able to jump out of the gym. It's just insane. But for six years, AB averaged over 1,500 yards and 11 touchdowns. Man, I think he's one of the most complete receivers ever when you talk about route running, footwork, body control, speed. He was pretty much perfect and even though he didn't have overly imposing size he was still a dominant red zone threat so to me it's one of those two or or logan can we get a shout out for don hudson because like if we are just thinking compared to their peers it's him and reggie in terms of beating the competition man seven time leader in yards nine time leader in touchdowns so i gotta give him a shout out dude because maybe he's just the right answer here yeah, I mean, if we're going, throwing it back, I remember we did rank uh, this a lot. Well, we're not throwing it back. Hey, yo. Like, I don't know what hey, you yo. think this is. Sorry, my fault. Uh, <laughs> if we're going to uh, older guys like that, Raymond Berry to Lance Allworth, uh, I think Steve Largent. Again, it's just it's just a different era of football, but I think those guys are honorable mentions. Good call, though, man. Yeah. I can't believe I left out Don Hudson. Can't leave out Don Hudson, man. Here's the one reason that I will make a distinction, because normally I'm so adamant about judge people versus their contemporaries. The game itself was so much less about passing the football that, yeah, outpacing your contemporaries is super impressive, but he just wasn't as valuable as dudes who were relied on more within the scope of their offense. But he certainly deserves a mention. Okay, Felipe on Twitter, asks us for our top five rappers since 2000, Logan. 
Excellent, excellent question. Uh, my two favorite rappers, I think, that are above everybody else are uh, Kanye West and The Game. Uh, they both put out two of my favorite albums ever. My favorite uh, album ever is The College Dropout. My second favorite album ever uh, is The Documentary. Both came out 04, 05. So those are my top two. And then my other three favorite rappers, Juice World, Gunna, and Future. Uh, not as like lyrically great as those other guys, but uh, I love... Uh, I love their music. Um, I actually got to see, I went to Juice World's concert. That was my first one in Richmond. Uh, and I hope at some point I'd love to see uh, some of these other guys live. But that's for sure my top five. I, I didn't know if we were going commercial or like our favorite, but uh, those are my five favorite guys. No. Your dogs, man. All right. My list. J. Cole, number one. And then two through five, some combination of Kanye, Wheezy, Drake, and then honestly, probably Eminem. I considered Meek Mill as well, but I do, uh, I really enjoy a lot of Eminem's work from the 2000s. Tough to say because Bro got a little bit corny after that, and he's definitely an insane person, and he has some very disturbing lyrics, but he could really spit and he could tell a really uh, good story when he wanted to. Okay. This one comes to us from Reese on Twitter. Does the Jaw Bane Triple J Big Three have a championship ceiling? And can Jaw be a number one on a championship team? Is it generous calling them a big three? Do you, do you think it's generous? I don't know. They're at least a medium plus size three. <laughs> they're they're a very good three. I don't think they have a championship ceiling uh, for, for a few reasons right now. I still don't think any of these guys are true number ones. I don't think Jaw is a number one on a championship team right now. I'd, I'd say that, I don't know, I just don't know about his impact as a as a real winner. Again, you know, I hate pointing this out because I know people love Ja Morant. They go to war for him when you disparage him in any way. But I just don't, the on-off numbers are disturbing. Like in the way that he statistically and analytically has not really made the Grizzlies better and they've won without him. So I just wonder uh, about that. Uh, Ja still has a few limitations. I'd like to see him progress as a pull-up jump shooter, continue to get better in that mid-range era uh, area, and as a three-point shooter. Um, and I just think they're kind of limited in certain ways. I think Triple J needs to be more reliable offensively, and we've seen flashes of it. We've seen like it portions this playoff run, man, and it, it sucks. With younger guys, it's it, it's more game to game. Even with some older guys like Anthony Davis, you know. It's about being more consistent. There are portions where I see, you know, portions of games where I see Triple J dominate and back guys down and physically use his size, and he's knocking down mid-range jump shots. He's being aggressive, and it's really impressive, and there's other games where he disappears. So I think he needs to be more reliable and just consistent offensively, continue to progress there. And then Bain, Bain's really good. I mean, he's an underrated ball handler, an underrated scorer, one of the best pure shooters in basketball. I don't know. There's just not a high enough offensive ceiling for me with those three guys, mostly because of Triple J. Mm -hmm. And again, I just don't think that... I don't know if John Morant's a true number one. I know he puts up crazy numbers. He's a lot of fun to watch. I just don't know if he's a number one, too. So right now, I think the Grizzlies are a great team, top to bottom, but I don't think they have a championship ceiling. Yeah, I agree, and I do want to say it's super impressive what they've accomplished this young, like even though they've underachieved in the playoffs, and I think I've been lower on them than the consensus, because I do have some real concerns about their structure as a basketball team when it comes to contending, I mean, Jaws 23, Triple J is 23, Desmond Bain is 25, and they're winning a whole lot of games. I think 
part of this is just a fundamental championship criteria, which is that you pretty much need a tier one great historically so offensive player to win a title. There are very few exceptions to that. In the last 15 years, the 2014 Spurs are probably an example, but best defensive team in the league, best shooting team in the league, so cerebral, so many highly skilled players, really a rarely perfect basketball team outside of not having a true superstar. And then the 2008 Celtics, who were by far the best defense in the league and had three tier two offensive players. So that alone, do I believe the Grizzlies have that? I do not. I think that although Jaw is a very good playmaker, an incredible rim pressurer, and does have some really impressive short range shot making with the floater, I don't think he's efficient enough as a scorer, consistent enough as a pull-up jump shooter, and quite smart enough in terms of his control of the game yet to be in that tier one conversation. It's a really tough tier to get into. I just think their half-court offense overall isn't good enough because of a combination of that and Triple J's inconsistency and the very sketchy spot-up shooting that they have had. They've been a 17th percentile and 23rd percentile half-court offense in the last two years. You're just not winning a title like that. There's no chance. The game slows down. You need to be able to grind out quality offensive possessions, and they can't do that at the level of the best teams in the league right now. And I do really think... We saw, as you mentioned, flashes. Triple J had that outstanding 10-game stretch towards the end of the regular season, and then he carried it over into Game 1 against the Lakers, where he's attacking mismatches, and he's playing physically, and he's an imposing driver, and he's shooting the ball really well. And then he fell off a cliff. And I just don't think he's consistently proven that he's at that level. So I would say, no, I don't really see a championship ceiling. They would have to really improve the pieces around them in terms of shooting and get some really quality defensive guys in there as well. And it's just really hard to have a championship ceiling, man. There's only so many teams who can win a title and most of them have a historically great player. You have a Jokic, you have a Giannis, you have a Steph, you have a LeBron, you have a KD, you have a Kawhi, and I do not see that here. Okay, Hunter McRobbie asked us on Instagram for the luckiest Super Bowl runs or the worst Super Bowl winners. Uh, I wrote down five here. I think I'll give the rest of mine, but I'll start with, I, I think maybe the worst Super Bowl winner. Ooh, it's tough. There's two teams, the 2005 Steelers and the 2015 Broncos to me ooh. stick out as like the worst winners in NFL history. And the big thing here is the offensive limitations. Uh, defense wins championships, right? I think that is a tenant of football. I think that is a, well, unless you have Patrick Mahomes and then throw everything else out of the window, it doesn't matter. You can win a Super Bowl because you have Patrick Mahomes. Both of these teams had loaded defenses. They were great. The 2015 Broncos defense was dominant. But I mean, it, if you were there in that moment, I, I know we tend to forget these things. Peyton Manning was horrible that year. Got replaced with Brock Osweiler. I mean, it was abysmal. His arm was shot. The mind was there. He just couldn't make the throws. It broke my heart uh, because Peyton Manning was one of my favorite football players growing up to see him like that. And so when you just look at how limited that team was offensively, uh, I think that's kind of one of the things that all of these teams that I wrote down check. And then the 05 Steelers, again, uh, great defense, but they were a wild card team. They had to win every game on the road. They go 11-5 and in 2005, so they were a good team. But when you talk about lucky... When you talk about lucky Super Bowl runs, I want you to think back to the AFC Divisional game where Jerome Bettis gets handed the ball off 
rock solid. Rock solid. But the bus never fumbled. I mean, that's like always a touchdown. Ball gets popped out. Um, there's nobody back. It is Ben Roethlisberger and the defensive back taking it back. And when you're talking about lucky by the uh, skin, <laughs> by the skin of your teeth, uh, Ben flicks his foot. I mean, barely gets a finger on that thing, and that's enough to trip him up. That is the all things considered, that their offense wasn't that great. What people forget about that too is it's not like we forced a turnover. After Ben tackles that guy, tackles. I use that word loosely. Mike Vanderjack shanks one of the easiest field goals I think to win a game ever. Like that is in not just a like that team wasn't that great I think when you look at the scope of great teams but they also had to have a couple breaks their way to get that ring and then you think about the path too with that team they don't go through a Brady they do beat Peyton in that game the playoff Peyton wasn't that great they take down Jake Plummer and then in the Super Bowl no disrespect to that Seahawks team but it's not like that's a great historical team either so Honestly, now that I've kind of laid all that out there, yeah, I guess I will go with them. I think the 05 Steelers would probably be my pick for the worst Super Bowl winner and luckiest team ever. Like, they had some major breaks uh, along the way. Also, in that Super Bowl, too, now that I'm thinking about it, Ben gets a touchdown called for him that isn't a TD. He's short of the goal line and ends up putting it over. And so, yeah, I mean, they just they had some major breaks their way. Uh, those are the two teams that are the biggest that stick out in my mind as the luckiest or worst teams to win a Super Bowl. Good choices on the short list. I'll throw out a couple more. I think the 1980 Raiders belong in this conversation. Not a great regular season team. 11-5. and five, Point differential of under plus four. Didn't beat a legitimately great team in their playoff run. I mean, the 12-4 and four Eagles in the Super Bowl were very good. But again, I wouldn't say great. It's not an overly loaded team overall. You have Plunkett at quarterback obviously this is pre tim brown and marcus allen and the dynamic weapons you think of definitely some very good defensive personnel here with lester hayes in the secondary but still like not all-time great in totality i just think it's one of the more weak and forgettable maybe the weakest super bowl run ever i will say another one from the 2000s who popped into my mind for lucky though is the 01 Pats. It's tough to call it lucky when you replicate it so many times, but that specific year, you got two game-winning field goals, and, of course, you have the tuck rule against the Raiders, where maybe they should have lost that game. But I think you identified a couple good ones. I mean, I thought about the two Giants teams just because of their regular season, but, man, they had such great playoff runs, like beating great Packers, Niners, and Pats teams in 2011, and then beating 13 win Cowboys and Packers and like the best team ever in 2007. I don't think there's any way that you can put them here. Okay, go ahead. I was just going to say, I mean, you do talk about lucky. I mean, that that one play where Eli escapes, the most iconic play arguably in Super Bowl history, though, the Tyree catch That's is true. one of the luckiest of all times. Not only that Tyree makes that catch and pins it to his helmet against Rodney Harrison, but the fact that Eli is hemmed up uh, has is swarmed by all those tacklers and ends up escaping out of the pocket to make that throw. Uh, I agree, though. For me, I didn't consider them in the same tier, though, because their runs were against great teams. And I don't know, man, playoff yeah. Eli is something fierce. Yeah. I don't refer to that as luck. I refer to that uh, as improbable. Magic, perhaps. But, yeah, something else, those two runs. Okay, Ben... 
Sackopolis on IG asks us if the Cowboys have the roster depth and talent to make a Super Bowl run. Probably not, if I'm being honest. I like I like Dak. I like Dak a lot. I think they have a great coaching staff. Uh, I like McCarthy a lot. Um, they got a new offensive coordinator in here. I think that was a big issue last season. I know we praised Kellen Moore uh, for what he was able to do with that offense. I think the – I don't think there was a lot of – like planning for uh, attacking against certain schemes and there was just routes to be routes if that makes sense so I think the offense should be better I think Dak should cut down on his turnovers I love Tony Pollard um and I, and I like the defense like I think the Cowboys are going to be legitimately good but I think the O-line is taking a legitimate step back from the offensive line that they once were they're still good uh Probably not. Like, I just, I wouldn't bet it. Like, I think the Cowboys are a playoff team, probably a wild card team behind the Eagles. But, and again, like, considering that Dak is a mid-tier quarterback, that he's top 10, he's good, but he's not great to put a team over the hump. You know what I mean? I think with the construction of this team, with the roster around him, I think you'd need a legitimately great quarterback to put them over the top, like a a franchise QB. And I like Dak. Again, I think he's top 10, but I don't think he's good enough to propel this team to where they need to go. Very interesting. I think that this is potentially a Super Bowl roster. Now, I wouldn't pick it. I don't think that they're the best team in the NFC, but this was an elite offense last year when Dak played. They put up 30 points per game. They have, as you mentioned, a top 10 quarterback who, yeah, had a down year, but 2019 through 2021 was averaging over 300 yards a game, was one of the most dynamic and prolific creators at the position that there was and wasn't as turnover prone as he was this past year with a very high end receiving core. What was a very effective run game last year? I mean, if they can figure out the Zach Martin situation, that does shape some of my opinion here, but this is like one of the most effective offensive attacks both through the air and through the ground last year and then you pair that with an elite pass rush which they have they were number one in pressure rate last year and obviously a top five dominant force there in Micah Parsons a relatively good run defense last year they were good situationally they still won the turnover battle convincingly because of what they were able to do defensively in spite of some of Dak's mistakes I think that they have all the pieces there. I think it's going to come down to coaching, where I got to say I'm not a big fan of Mike McCarthy. I think he's made plenty of situational mistakes over the years. And Dak's execution. Can he elevate maybe from being fringe top 10 to top 5 for a run? If those components come together with the talent I do believe they have on both sides of the ball, yeah, they're not top, top tier, but I do think that they are in the conversation and are a team that has the upside to have that kind of run. Okay. Samuel Godfrey on Instagram asks us, who are the ultimate losers in NFL and NBA history, Logan? This is one of my favorite questions uh, that we got in this one. When I think of the word loser, and I hate to pick on the guy, I think of Marty Schottenheimer above anybody else. Um, uh, rest in peace, Marty. I, I, I love every clip of Marty. He was a good dude. He was a great coach. It was one of the best regular season coaches ever. 201-126 uh, uh, career record. He's eighth in career wins. Carson, if you don't have this written down, do you want to take a guess at what his playoff record is? He played in 18 playoff games. I'm going to go 5-13. and 13. Oh, my gosh. Spot on. Look at this dude, man. 
five and thirteen. It's and it's sad because when you think of the circumstances that Marty Schottenheimer lost in, it breaks your heart. Uh, he's a part of the fumble game where. Ernest Biner fumbles, and then John Elway marches 98 yards to the end zone. One of the most soul-crushing defeats of all time with great, great Browns teams. If you look through the scope of NFL history and you look at teams that should have won a Super Bowl, I think those Browns are up there. And the worst one, Carson, I've told you this story many times. It was one of my favorite NFL Films clips. In a, I believe it's 2005 or 2006 game, uh, he's coaching the Chargers against the New England Patriots. There is a clip of him on the sideline. I don't know if it's before the drive or before the game. Uh, he's talking to a defensive back, and he walks up to him, and he says, hey, when you get the game-winning interception, go down. I don't want you to take this back. There's no point. We already have the lead. We're going to put Tom Brady and them away. We are, we're going to go to the promised land. We're going to get this thing done. Tom Brady throws a soul-crushing pick. The game is over. If the defensive back lays down and goes down, the game's wraps. But again, divine intervention comes in here. The defensive back tries to take it back. He doesn't heed Marty's words, and he ends up fumbling. Patriots get the ball back. They score, and they win the game. So there's other guys that I want to get to uh, after I hear you, um, your guy, Carson. But when I think of the ultimate loser in sports history, I think of Marty Schottenheimer. Great choice, just incredibly brutal phrasing, though, the ultimate loser in sports history. That's the thing with this question. It's like you got to think about guys who were relevant, who were good enough to have earned that title. So it's a bit harsh. And that's why I feel bad about my football selection. I felt I had a better menu of options for the NBA. I'm going with Fran Tarkenton, man. And the reason for that is that Fran was such a great quarterback, but he was so, so bad in big games. 0-3 in the Super Bowl with a pass rating of under 44, 163 yards a game, one touchdown to six picks. So yes, he was able to lead great regular season teams and obviously a pioneer with his mobility and a league MVP. But that sort of Super Bowl resume is tough to live down and ultimately that's his legacy, right? What do people know the 70s Vikings for? They know them for losing four times in the Super Bowl. Fran was there for three of them and he was really bad and that is ultimately his legacy. I do have some other uh, NFL guys. I think that's an excellent pick. I have the Vikings, uh, the 1970s Vikings written down here. Also, the Vikings just in general. I mean, you think about the pain and anguish that that team has suffered. The uh, the Blair Walsh game. The mm-hmm. Gary Anderson missed. 1998. The Gary yeah. Anderson missed field goal. Uh, it, it made how, however many consecutively. Um, he has not missed in over a year. Oh, right on time, right on cue. Uh, you think about the, uh, oh, the Diggs. Uh, no, no, the Diggs play was four of them. I was thinking about the Saints' anguish too. Now, so they've had a few moments, but uh, the Vikings have endured their pain. I also wrote down the 1990s Bills. I mean, when you think about, I just, I just well, losing the big one. Um, four times. Good men three. who gave it their best shot. They did. Superstars, all of them. I love them. Um, and then the other guy I wrote down here, not all oh, two guys. I wrote down one player, one more coach. Jeff Fisher, I think, is in that tier for me. Twelfth uh, in career wins, but a five and six playoff record. Went to the Super Bowl one time, uh, lost on that uh, game losing play from McNair, where uh, Gerard Dyson can't get across the or Kevin Dyson, excuse me, Gerard Dyson's the baseball player. And then one more football guy, Tony Romo. Uh, what do I think about when I think about Tony Romo losing in the playoffs? 
him and Dak still share that distinction, and Dak has to get that monkey off his back, man. The most divisional round appearances without a win. Romo and Dak, how appropriate, share that distinction together. I think they're both 0-3. Uh, Romo never got past the divisional round, and it's a, uh, it's, it's a tough stain on his resume. But those were all my football picks. Can't believe you didn't mention Phillip Rivers. That felt like a slam dunk for you. Okay, I'll throw out some of my NBA guys because I thought about a few. I have Dominique Wilkins on my short list. I just talked for the volume about why I think he's one of the most overrated players ever. I think ultimately his shortcomings to winning, inefficient scorer, not a good playmaker, not a good defender. It's very difficult to build a great team around anybody in that archetype. And in the playoffs, his efficiency got even worse under 23 points per game on 41% from the field in elimination games specifically and never made it to the conference finals in his career. And I do think that although he didn't have loaded rosters, he definitely bears accountability for that and for the limitations of his overall style and skill set. I have Russell Westbrook on my short list just because he's never won a playoff series as the guy, which for her, for his stature as an all-time player is pretty unique. And I think his greatest limitation in terms of winning, has been trying to do too much and overimposing himself on the game. And we've seen it too many times in the playoffs. And you talk about elimination games, dude. Russ has shot 37% from the field, 29% from deep. That is just an automatic killer in those situations. It's not from any lack of drive. It's just from a lack of understanding what it takes to win at the highest levels and an overall limitation with his poor jump shooting and not having a consistent positive defensive impact on the game. I think more compelling candidates, though. Boogie Cousins, who I really enjoyed watching because of his passing skill and his shooting skill. He was a few years ahead of the trend there, where now we have bigs who are more skilled than ever before in those categories, but ultimately was a low-efficiency, high-turnover, very demanding offensive hub in terms of how you had to play through him who was not having a positive impact defensively and who just had a really bad attitude and I think some people look at it from the angle of oh man if he just could have had more support in Sacramento and whatnot but I think you were never going to be able to build a winning team around that sort of of player even though he may have been really talented it matters what things you are talented at in basketball some things are more immediately conducive to winning and boogie didn't excel in those categories i do think you gotta mention t-mac for never getting out of the first round as the guy although again he was trying to overcome some brutal rosters in orlando houston they just had some devastating first round losses where they were right there i wouldn't quite put his level of responsibility up there with some of these other guys. But my ultimate choice, Logan, is going to be Adrian Dantley. I just think this is one of the ultimate cases of uh, teams having to get rid of him to reach their true ceiling in spite of his basketball talent in a vacuum, right? He played on three teams in his first two years, despite the fact that he came into the league dropping 20 a night efficiently, no coincidence. Lakers ditched him launched a dynasty the jazz got better after he left despite the fact that he was their best player for a half decade on some really middling teams and then the pistons got rid of him to win the title because he was just so incompatible with winning basketball he was so rigid stylistically and we can look at him and say oh 
but he was such an artist out of the post and he was so uniquely gifted at drawing fouls that made him even more efficient as a scorer and he's dropping 30 a night on some okay teams at least but he played such a black hole style he was going to kill your flow offensively he was never going to amplify others with his playmaking he sucked defensively and he was generally a grading dude and very very stubborn so you were never going to win anything meaningful with adrian dantley not just as your best player but anywhere on your team because to adapt to be a third best guy you have to have a certain mentality that he very clearly did not have so adrian dantley is my number one choice for the biggest nba loser ever and maybe i'm maybe i'm thinking of somebody else i mean did the the pistons traded him away too right the Pistons traded him away. They brought in Mark Aguirre, and they traded him away because he was a, a diva, and he was more trouble than he was worth. And they ended up winning a title right after that too, right? Back to back. Um, I, I do want to ask you. I think I think the way you approached this was really good. You went with losing stylistical players as ultimate losers. I wrote down two guys that just like infamously couldn't get the job done. So what do you think about people? like labeling Chris Paul or Elgin Baylor for never getting a ring as like big time oh. losers. Well, I think Elgin makes sense because he lost in eight finals. But again, I don't think he was responsible for that. I think that he was facing a talent deficit in every one of those series, basically, maybe with the exception of 1969 against the Celtics, they were the more talented team that time around. And Chris Paul has been so good in the playoffs. I think it's one of the great lies in NBA history that he is an underachiever or a choker or anything like that. So I also thought about guys like that. I mean, you'd have to put Carl Malone in that tier as well, right? Just couldn't get it done in the big game despite all these different chances in terms of team success, couldn't win the title. But to me, that's not quite as much what I think of compared to guys who, as the best player on your team, you were only going to go so far, and they had these obvious limitations that just made that clear. Yeah, I don't think those guys are losers, too, and it's even tougher that Baylor left midseason when they finally did end up getting a ring, you know? Yeah, yeah, but he was washed by that point. He had just had too many troubles with his knees so he wouldn't have been able to have a real impact anyways but indeed it is a little dagger to the heart that he started the 71 72 season still playing and then played i think it was nine games and retired and that's when they put it all together anybody else for biggest loser or shall we move on i wrote down the entirety of the 1990s east and then yeah i think the 80s nuggets <laughs> for how they played basketball the very late 80s Nuggets, the Paul Westhead Nuggets. Oh, yeah. yeah. They were uh, they were just trying to go fast, fast, fast. Very, very strange. Okay. Oh, wow. We're up to our last question, Logan. Earl Claren on IG asked us, who's the better defender at their apex, Scottie Pippen or Draymond Green? This is such a good question. Uh, I think that Scottie is the best perimeter defender uh, in NBA history. I think that you can make an argument for other guys, but I think for how long he did it and how dominant he was, uh, always taking on the task of the team's best player, uh, could guard you know smaller guards really quick and could guard forwards, uh, moved his feet really well laterally, uh, laterally, had a strong base, and 
I think that stuck out to me rewatching tape on Scotty was just how good his hands were. Like anywhere the ball went, like oh Scotty God, was yeah. was punching it out. Uh, could front guys in the post. Uh, could you know uh, even you know shade them, get on the backside of them, and poke balls loose. Like just always hyper aware. I saw one clip where I think he's fronting Barkley, and they try to throw an inlet pass or something, and Scotty jumps like up. It looks like two feet up in the air. Just boom gets a basketball and they're right out. So I think Scotty deserves a bunch of credit. And and if you label him as the greatest perimeter defender ever, uh, I think it's a good argument. But I I would go with Draymond just because of his versatility. Like Draymond in the modern age is, uh, can do all that, right? Can guard any position, legitimately one through five, but is also a great rim protector. Not just like a good rim protector who can take on fives, a great rim protector, like still one of the best in the NBA. And then just his IQ, like no disrespect to Scotty, but like what Draymond can do off ball, because Scotty's one of the best on ball guys ever. can just take it away. The way Draymond can pre-rotate and anticipate things on the back end and stop them from happening uh, is just amazing to me. His pick and roll IQ, his situational IQ, just knowing where he needs to be. Um, I just think Draymond, you can build a... Uh, both of these guys. I mean, again, like you said, we're, we're splitting hairs here, but I think it's a little easier for you to build a great team defense around Draymond because of his versatility and how he can guard bigs a little more effectively than Scotty. And I'm not saying Scotty couldn't. Scotty's definitely capable, but Draymond's legitimately great. So I would go Draymond just because of the versatility, mm-hmm. but it's a really good question. It's a great question. And to me, the answer is almost more about who is more valuable than who is better because I think Scotty is with Kawhi in a tier in terms of the best pure perimeter defender ever and you mentioned so many of the traits elite length great athleticism especially in his younger years crazy hands great anticipation could guard one through four at a high level just an all-around disruptor who did have a bit of that secondary rim protection too but the most valuable archetype defensively throughout NBA history pre-last 10 years has been the dominant rim protector, right? Akeem, Bill Russell, Wilt, David Robinson, etc. Those have been the guys who singularly make you elite on that end. A great wing defender didn't quite have that sort of singular impact. Now, in this most recent generation, I think it has become highly versatile guys who can also be great rim protectors because that's still the one place on the floor where you can have the most dominant impact as a team help defender but it certainly helps if you can drive a switching scheme as well if you can handle matchups maybe the team's best player is a wing and you are best equipped to take that on as well that's so valuable and that's why i think draymond is the best defender of this past decade and why it is easier to build a great team defense just with him out there and why he is to me the architect of the best overall defense of the last 10 plus years. Like Draymond is going to hold you 12% below your average field goal percentage at the rim while also being one of the, I don't know if I would quite say best perimeter defenders in the league anymore, but at his peak, I think so. And still a very, very good perimeter defender today. And so uniquely strong for his position that he's capable of actually battling with bigs, but also holding off guys like Kawhi and LeBron uniquely well, right? Because those guys can just bully some people so easily. It's not that Draymond can stop them, but he can do a better job than pretty much anybody else out there 
great length with the 7-1 wingspan, elite, elite hands. And ultimately, it comes down to a matter of skill set. Draymond's ability to excel in multiple areas, but particularly as a rim protector, is just more valuable to transforming my team defense. But this is really close. And I think that they're both top 10 defenders of all time. So there you have it, guys. We answered as many of your questions as we could, and that was really a ton of fun. We got to talk about such wide-spanning topics, and we love to do that. There's so many things throughout NBA and NFL history that it's not always easy to find a spot to talk about. So this was a great opportunity to do that, and we hope that you guys enjoyed. If you want more content from us, you can always listen to the podcast across audio platforms. You can subscribe to the Volume YouTube page to get our full shows with video. You can follow us across social media, TikTok at NerdSesh, Instagram, same handle, Twitter at Nerd underscore Sesh. You can join our Discord at the link tree in any of our social media bios to just talk basketball, football with us whenever. And you can buy yourself some NerdSesh merch. We both have the flags behind us. We have hats. We have shirts. Particularly, we have one shirt with all of our nicknames or 12 of our most iconic nicknames that we start our TikToks off with on the back. That's my favorite item. We've got hoodies too. So you can check all that out at thevolume.com or that is also in our link tree. And with that, as always, appreciate you guys so much, especially for this show because you're what made it possible. And with that, I have been Carson Brabber. I have been Logan Camden. And this was Nerd Sash. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.